And here at the five o'clock service, we've been looking at an introductory sort of week on or, or month on the subject of revival. We looked at the Old Testament and we looked at the Old Testament word for revival that basically speaks about breathing in the breath of God. One of the greatest pictures of revival is the picture of Ezekiel's bones in Ezekiel 37 where he asks the Lord, can these dry bones live? Can they be revived? And we spent some time looking at different aspects of revival in the Old Testament where people turned back to God by the power of the Spirit. And uh, last week we spent some time looking at the subject of personal revival. And I took a little bit of a different slant on that because I took you really to the book of James. Um, Because remember, all of the New Testament epistles were written during a time of great revival and great expansion. And so in the book of James, we saw the persecuted Jewish church, because James was the earliest of the epistles to be written. And um, they had been in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, they'd been scattered into Judea, Palestine, and they set up new congregations. But very soon, even though revival was only a few years old, and we'll look at that in a minute, they still had their problems. You know, people think, oh, once revival comes, once God pours out his spirit again, all our problems will be solved. On the contrary, all our problems will just begin. Because when God sends his power, his reviving power, to the church, and remember, revival is specifically for believers and the church. Of course, when revival comes on the church and on believers' life, it overflows, and, and the church rises up in evangelism and discipleship, and people get saved as a sort of knock on effect. But when the power of God falls, everything comes to the surface. So when the Holy Spirit falls in great power, you will see three things manifest. A lot of, that, a lot of what's hidden will be made, made plain. When the Holy Spirit falls, you see a great work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Great changes, great conversions, uh, great disciples, all these wonderful things, great healings on the inside, great formations in revival. What can take 10 years in normal Christian growth can happen in a person's life in a few weeks or months. So in revival comes, you get great works of the Spirit in people's lives. But also when revival comes, those that don't flow with the Spirit and the Word, you get a great manifestation of the flesh. This is sometimes when God has poured out His Spirit in former times, people have criticized the move of God. Why? Because they've looked at some fleshly activity in that revival, and that's all the attention that they've given to, the fleshly activity that's taken place. And they've said, this isn't revival. Look at these fleshly people. Well, when the revival comes, those that don't move in the Spirit or cooperate with the Spirit in the church, their flesh will be exposed and will manifest more than ever. So expect the flesh to manifest when revival pours out. We We see in Corinthians, the young Corinthians church, born in revival, but became very fleshly very quickly because they refused to move with the Spirit, many of them, and so they began to get engaged in all kinds of flesh. We see in the 
Galatians, the, the young church of Galatians was born in the Spirit, Galatians 3. You started in the Spirit, signs and wonders and miracles in the Spirit. You received the Spirit, you encountered the Spirit, and yet you were so quickly turning to another gospel. They were becoming legalistics. The flesh manifests in two main forms. It either manifests in the Corinthian fleshly immoral form, where they were just doing whatever they wanted, involved in all kinds of immorality. That's the flesh. But equally, and sometimes even worse, a manifestation of the flesh is legalism. And that's what we found in Galatians. Both young churches, both born in the wave of revival that we're going to look at, that was born in, in, in Pentecost. So when revival comes, you get a great work of the Spirit in many people's lives. But you also get a great manifestation of the flesh with those that refuse to cooperate with revival and go deeper with God. And then thirdly, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, you get also greater manifestations of the demonic. Uh, I mean, you just have to see Jesus. Jesus walked in revival for three years, and wherever he went, he, demons were manifesting, weren't they? Demons that didn't manifest before, they didn't manifest before, but Jesus comes into the place, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and demons are crying out, we know who you are, the Son of God. And, and Jesus spent so, many t so much of his time telling demons to be quiet. Because when the power of God comes, it exposes the demonic. It, it, that which is demonic that is, is lying just beneath the surface begins to be provoked by the Spirit and, and comes. And, and of course, those things are meant to manifest to be dealt with. So revival can sometimes be looked at with rose-tinted glasses. Oh, the Welsh revival. Well, that was a mess. Oh, uh, the Irish revival. That was a mess. Oh, there the the are many Welsh revivals in the past and, and, and all these things. that They were very, very messy. If you ever read Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalists uh, in the 1700s who had great revival in America, if you read his books on revival, you, you will see that he noticed a lot of messiness going on, that he could see the authentic work of the Spirit, but also manifestations of, of the flesh, manifestations that weren't from God all mixed in together. And that's why revival is such an amazing thing, because revival stirs everything up that is beneath the surface to come out so that it can be dealt with head on. Now, next month, we're going to continue in this revival theme. And I'm going to spend some time next month taking you through some of the revivals that have taken place in Great Britain. Uh, regulars know I have a book available for three pounds uh, in the foyer called Revivals, Land of Hope and Glory, Revivals uh, Throughout British History. And we're going to have a look at some of those revivals. Next week, we're going to start in the Middle Ages, Light in the Dark Ages. We're going to look at how the gospel came to Britain and then how some fiery evangelistic monks like St. Aidan and uh, Cuthbert, sorry, St. Aidan and, um, I've forgotten his name now, Columbus, fiery monks, Columbus, Patrick, fiery monks were sent from different islands 
into the north of England to preach the gospel with signs and wonders. And that was a messy business. Sometimes they had some very strange ideas. They, they, they weren't as schooled in, in, in the Bible as we are today, but they loved God and they weren't frightened of anyone. So we're going to have a look at some of these revivals through the ages, and we're also going to be speaking on, on revival messages that come out of Scripture. But today I want to finish this mini-section on corporate revival. How revival does not just affect individuals, personal revival, when the Holy Spirit powerfully comes into a person's life for great change, but also what happens when many people are revived together, when the church really moves in revival. And when we look in the Bible for patterns of revival, of course the greatest pattern of revival is Acts chapter 2. You saw the DVD earlier of a hundred years celebration of the Elim Pentecostal movement of which we were part of. Born in Northern Ireland, led by some Welsh brothers who were born again in the Welsh revival of 1904. That was a very short-lived revival, but they took the flames of that and uh, they began to hold revival meetings Miracle meetings, salvation and meetings up and down the nation and, and a whole movement of churches were born. Kensington Temple itself was the headquarters church of the founder of the Elim movement, George Jeffreys. He named this church Kensington Temple. It was called Horbury Chapel, but when he took it over, he named it Kensington Temple. And he held revival meetings here. And uh, so we, ha we have a history of these things in our movement. Our movement was born in the fires of revival. And so Acts chapter 2 gives us a model. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in Acts will happen in every revival. Can't dictate to God in what way he manifests his spirit in different times. But there are certain elements in the Acts description of the first revival in the history of the new church that we will see again and again, and I do want to focus especially on the community aspect of that. So when we look at Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, you might like to turn to those, we see that there was a church that had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 1, it says that... that um, Jesus presented himself alive, resurrected to the church and by many proofs, appearing them to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. And while staying with me, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That word baptism simply means immersed. Just as John the Baptist took people and immersed them in the water of the River Jordan, so Jesus was saying that in a few short days he would take those believers and he would plunge them and immerse them in, a, in an experience of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, we see in verse 6 following that the disciples really didn't know or didn't really have much focus or understanding of what was about to happen to them. They were not yet revived. 
They were witnesses to the resurrected Christ, but they were not moving in a revival anointing because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. And that's why Jesus said, wait. And so they were really scattered in their mindset. Uh, Often we see in the Gospels that the disciples were very slow to pick up on what Jesus was really saying. Jesus would often rebuke them and say, he'd say things like, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they'd be like, what? Has he been to the bakery? Was he been to, did you go to, did you go with the bake? And he's like, oh, I'm not talking about bread from a bakery. I'm talking about their teaching. Many times they were slow to understand. They, they missed it. Even here in the book of Acts, they're saying, Lord, will you at time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, look, forget it. It's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has fixed, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes upon you. So they were wanting to discuss with Jesus things that they thought were important that actually weren't important. You know, the times and the seasons, they wanted a theological debate. And Jesus said, you need power. You need the Holy Spirit. You don't need to debate and discuss this, that and the other. And, you know, this is a picture of, of the church often before revival takes place. They are, the church is often before the Holy Spirit is poured out all over the place, majoring on minors, discussing this theology and that theology and, and how are they going to, to change the gospel in order to fit the sign of the times and how are they going to bring the kingdom politically and how are they going to bring it socially and, and they're getting in all these types of human thinking and human means to try and, and be the church. And Jesus' word to them is the same to his disciples. He says, look, forget about all these things. You need power. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Then you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and all the end of the earth. They were asking about when the restoration of the kingdom was going to come. They were thinking politically. They were thinking, when is Israel going to be released from Rome? They were still going on that false understanding of the kingdom. And Jesus said, you want the kingdom? When the power of God comes in your life and transforms you, you'll be my witnesses, and that's how we'll bring the kingdom. And then he ascended into heaven. And then again, we we see them messing around. They don't really know what they're doing. They go back to Jerusalem, and they're having meetings in the upper room, and and in one accord, they're praying together. That was good. But, um, But then Peter gets up and addresses them, and says, oh, we we need to find another one to to, to take Judas' place. And so they began political thinking about how they would replace Judas to get the twelve. I mean, they were just messing around, really. You know, God never told them to replace Judas. God already had a man in mind. He He wasn't even born again. He was going to be a persecutor of the church. God had Paul in mind. But they they were just, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just biding time. Sometimes when we're waiting, or or when the Holy Spirit is not poured out, the church is just messing around. Like I said, majoring on minors, political thinking, shuffling the uh, um, things around of of no real importance, and uh, cast lots, and Matthias, who you never hear of again, really. 
was numbered with the 11 apostles. A picture of a group of believers without power. But now when the day of Pentecost comes, I don't think I need to read about what happens. You know, the rushing wind, the Holy Spirit comes, they begin to speak in other tongues. There is immediate change in their lives. And and this is a constant theme of the Holy Spirit, not just in the New Testament, but throughout the Bible. Because God never uses a man or a woman without first giving them an experience with his Holy Spirit. You can see that right there in the Old Testament. Moses, he had the anointing of God. He had an experience with the Holy Spirit. Joshua had an experience with the Holy Spirit. The elders that were called to help, the 70 elders called to help Moses, they had an experience with the Holy Spirit and prophesied before they were used. Um, The um, tailors that made the garments for Aaron, they were filled with the Holy Spirit to do that, even though they had uh, um, their own tailoring ability. It wasn't enough for God. It had to be Spirit-filled. The builders that builded the tabernacle, they were builders by trade, but they were filled with the Spirit to do it. We think of the kings and the prophets that came. We think of the judges in the book of Judges. They were anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon such people as Gideon and they'd be changed in an instant. The Spirit of the Lord came on the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord came on on King David. The Elijahs and the Elishas and And then when everything went bad and the kings began to rule politically, but without the anointing of God, and eventually they were deported into Assyria and Babylon, it was the Holy Spirit that restored the people of Israel. And we had anointed people like Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, that came to to do the work of God. And then there was 400 silent years between the Old and the New Testament. But then what happened? Revival took place. The Holy Spirit began moving again. The Holy Spirit began and moved on Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. A great repentance revivalist that was going to prepare the way for Jesus. And and the rest is history. And So here in in, in chapter 2, what happened was transformation transformation and transformation within moments of experience of God. Right right after this experience, the power of God thrusts them out and they're praising God and people are hearing uh, the glory of God in their own language and the works of God are being uh, declared to them in verse 11 of of chapter 2 and they're amazed And they're confused. When the Holy Spirit comes, amazement comes. Why? Because when revival comes, what it does is it brings the reality of God into people's lives. That which had been behind the curtain, or that which had been quietly working, the Holy Spirit quietly working his ordinary work in in the church. But then when the Holy Spirit comes in revival... All that changes. 
All the things that are behind the curtain, the curtain is lifted. So that's what I said. The curtain is lifted on the work of the Spirit. The curtain is lifted on the work of the devil. And the curtain is lifted on the fleshliness of people that refuse to be revived. Revival brings us into a sharp realisation of the reality of spiritual things. Oh yeah, when... Right now, you can go up and down Britain and, and people are dead to the things of the Spirit. Some churches are dead to the things of the Spirit, but thank God, God is on the move in many churches in Britain. But pe- people don't give a stuff about the Holy Spirit. They don't care about Pentecost. They're not bothered about the church. Why? Because they don't see the reality of God in the church, even though the Holy Spirit is working. But when revival comes, and you'll see this when we look at some of the revivals in the coming month or so, when we actually do a case study from some of these revivals in Britain, you'll see that when revival comes, everything that is hidden is revealed. I mean, it's like God gets the gloves off and gets into the ring with the devil. There's no more messing around. There's no more hidden. There's no more confusion. Things become real and come into a sharp, Focus. And that's what you see in Acts. Before Pentecost, nobody in Jerusalem gave a hoot about these disciples. Jesus had died. There'd been rumours that he'd been raised again, but everybody had got on with their life. They'd remembered this Nazarene who had gone around healing and doing this, but he'd gone now. He'd gone now. They weren't interested. Jerusalem wasn't interested in what was going in a tiny little upper room. I always think the upper room, you know, you know, people, we sort of like rose-tinted glasses. The upper room must have been an amazing place. No, it was probably a room above a kebab shop. It was just a little room. You wouldn't know. Where, nobody knew about the upper room. There wasn't a sign this way to the upper room. You couldn't Google the upper room. Where are they? No, it was just a tiny little place. Nobody cared. Nobody was interested. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that changed within moments. And there was confusion. God had turned up and nobody was ready for him. Not even the disciples. Jesus had said, tarry in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Wait in Jerusalem and you will be immersed into the Holy Spirit. Nobody had any idea what it would be like to experience this plunging into the Holy Spirit. And you know what it was like to be plunged into the waters of uh, John the Baptist's baptism. But what does it mean to be plunged into an experience of the Holy Spirit? Most of us don't know. Most charismatic and Pentecostal believers have not experienced this type of intensity of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, you're saying we're not baptized in the Holy Spirit? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the intent... I don't think there's anybody here that has experienced the intensity that we're, of the Holy Spirit's experience that we're reading in Acts chapter 2. It's possible that maybe one or two of you had that type of thing, but, but if you did, the, then the knock-on effects would be tremendous, wouldn't they? So the Holy Spirit comes in, in different ways and in different, different intensities. And revival is simply an, an intensifying experience of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit doing what he does, but in a more manifest and intense way. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life, thank God. He's at work in my life. He's at work in Kensington Temple, many other churches. And we're thanking God for that. I'm not denigrating 
the normal work of the Holy Spirit. But what we're saying is we're hungry for a greater work of the Holy Spirit. And that's part of what we do on the 7 o'clock service. Tonight I'm going to speak about the glory of God. And how Moses said, show me your glory and why that's so important. Because when God shows his glory, it's revival. And we're pressing in. We want more of God. We want more of God. We want more. We're not satisfied with the good things that he's given to us. I've said, said it before, I'll say it again. Revival, the pursuit of revival is an end in itself. Why? Because it is the very pursuit of God. I told you about two extremes when it comes to revival. You have one extreme, and they're not interested in day-to-day church. They, would, they wouldn't join a cell group here. They haven't got time for that. They're waiting for the big one. They're waiting for the big revival to come. They're not interested in daily church and serving, cell groups, welcome teams, stewarding, daily evangelism teams. They're not interested in those things. Why? Because they're waiting for the big revival. And as soon as they hear strange, sensational things taking place in the church around the world, they're the first people on the plane to go and see it. And they're always talking about the big event of revival, but they're never involved in the normal work of the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis. Which is crazy. It's like, oh, Holy Spirit, I'm not interested in in you at all or what you're doing until you come in a sensational way. That's an extreme. You can meet people like that. They, they, They can't root themselves in a local church because they're waiting for the big one. That's one extreme. The other extreme is people that hardly ever think about revival at all. It's like, why are you going on about revival for? Who, you, know, you know, revival, revival, revival. We've been looking for revival. And, uh, you know, we've said revival's just round the corner. 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 We're going in circles. It's not going to happen. And they say, you know, you're living in cloud cuckoo land. You're waiting for revival. That's not the way that God works. Just get on with what you're doing day to day. Just be faithful. Just be obedient. Just do what the Lord Lord wants. But don't even think about revival. Well, these people value the day-to-day work of the Holy Spirit. And thank God for that. But they've got no passion for more. They're not not in their vision. They're not making room for God in their vision of the future. They're not making room in their vision for the for themselves in the future that they could radically and totally change and get to totally different levels of experience with God and to be used of God. It's not even on their radar. You know, they're, they're not planning for... They don't think about how would we disciple hundreds of thousands of people if they came into the kingdom in a short time in London. Because they don't even think that's going to happen. They, they tolerate the levels that they're at. They think, well, this is about as good as it gets. They're thermometers, not thermostats. And they're faithful, good people. But you need an element of desire. You need, Jesus didn't say, just, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. Pray in Jerusalem. Seek me for power on and high. And what was happening was that, I know the disciples were messing around doing, they should have just been praying. But when they were praying, something was happening to them, preparing them for the outpouring of the Spirit. You, you know, there is a preparing work, I believe. We'll see that when we look at revivals in the coming weeks, and we'll see how revivals start, they don't just appear out of nothing. God often does a preparatory work. The Holy Spirit comes and 
give someone a burden for the lost. Prayer meetings, or people get dissatisfied, or things often before a revival, things get so bad in society that Christians begin, begin to say, can't cope with it, I don't want this, can't allow this to happen anymore. Often revivals take place at the darkest moments of society. You see that again and again. The darkest moments, when it looks like it's all over for God, something happens. And often it's only the darkest moments in history that produce a church that desires revival. When, when, when revivals start to die out, it's usually when Christians uh, get too comfortable with the blessings of former generations. They get lazy. Why? Because they've got the blessing. Everything's going well. They, they don't feel a sense of change. And so often the second or third generation after revival are a bunch of lazy, lazy Christians. Their, their grandparents paid the price, couldn't stand what was going on in the world, and were saying, use me, God. God, break in. They had a heart for revival, and that heart for revival was changing their heart. And then God came. Bang! Power! And they were so glad that God had came. They were so glad that God had changed them. They realized that without God they were nothing, that they were powerless, ineffectual, unholy. And they were seeking, God, change me and change Britain. And then God came, and they were so grateful for the change in their lives, and they're so grateful to see the blessing because they'd seen such, such a, a, a lack of the Spirit in their own lives, seen such a lack of God in society. They knew what it was like not to have God, if I can put it that way. So when God came, they were so grateful. But then... Of course, their children were brought up and didn't know anything different but God's blessing and God's revival. Didn't know what it was like to be in the dark places. Didn't know what it was like to be in the desert. Never been in the desert. Had only experienced oases. And these children, if you like, they're brought up, or the next generation, or those that come in and are saved in revival, they, they take it as normal. They don't, they don't know. They think that this amazing supernatural move of the Holy Spirit, they don't know any different. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they need to realize that they, they'd better take what they've got as precious. And so the second and third generations, they're spoilt. It's like they're spoilt. They've had it so good. They take things for granted. The things that the former generation, the pioneer revival, sought for God and and, and the work of God that was deep within them and, and their gratefulness and their cherishing the glory of God when it came and saying, please, Lord, don't go. This is so wonderful. We remember your deliverance. We remember, and, and this sort of attitude. The next generation, take it for granted. I mean, we're not even in revival, but there's times in Kensington Temple where I've seen people take for granted what we have here. Not you, but I've seen people. I've seen people... I've seen people being ministers here who take for granted what we've got here. Just assume that hundreds and thousands of people will turn up. Just assume it. Why? Because it's always happened. Just assume the 11 o'clock's going to be overflowing. Just assume. They just assume it. Why? Because when they came, it was like that. 
This is just the way it is. No, it was not always the way it is. Fifty years ago, this place was empty. But they, 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 and they think that it'll always be like that. And, 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 you know, some of them aren't here now, but I thought, my God, I hope you never become senior minister here. Because the thing will just dive. Why? Because you think it's your right. You, you, you think, you don't realise the desire and the hunger of people that birthed a move. And so, in order for us to grow and continue in what God is doing with us, we can't take it for granted. We have to re-pioneer and re-pioneer and re-pioneer. And what do we have to re-pioneer? Our own hearts. Our own hearts. And so the second and third generations usually lose revival. The Methodist revival, by the time John, we uh, John Wesley was, was old, he was already complaining about unrevived Methodists. They'd had such a move of God in such a dark time that a whole generation had been used to the blessing of God. Now they had all these hundreds and thousands of meetings and churches and people spent all their time looking after the meetings instead of pioneering. It's a very dangerous thing. But here in Pentecost, these people have been ready for this, prepared for this. And when the power of God came, they went out. And people didn't know what was happening. They're drunk, mocking them. They were amazed. They were confused. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was turning everything upside down. Or actually right side up. It's so funny. You can have generations of people scoffing. There's no God. We don't believe in demons. We don't believe in spiritual things. You can get generations of academics and uh, uh, media people scoffing at God, laughing at, 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 at the demise, so-called demise of the church. And they're doing all these things in their arrogance and it seems like there's no answer. And then all of a sudden God turns up and shuts them up immediately. Just shuts them up like that. They have no answer. And so people didn't know what was going on. This is what we want. We want the Holy Spirit to come in such power that, 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 our, that our minds, that, we are, that the whole atmosphere is transformed. I remember once, it, um, I was driving in my car back from work. And actually, I was, I was thinking, I was writing a chapter on my book on the end times, which I, I wrote one chapter and then got so confused, I left it. So I've got one chapter on my book on the end times. And that chapter's all about Jesus coming soon. And I was thinking about how the early church really expected Jesus to come very, very soon, probably in their lifetime. And you can read that in the New Testament. And I was thinking about how, you know, generally speaking, we're not really that bothered whether Jesus comes or not. Colin was speaking about this earlier. It's sort of like, if you're going to come, can you just wait? I'm getting married in about two months, Chris Shimon. I'll get married. Or, uh, and so we're not really alone. And I thought, what would it be like when Jesus comes? And I was just driving home, and I'll link this to revival in a minute. And it was a cloudy day, a cold day. I'm just driving, thinking about these things. And all of a sudden, out of nothing, it begins to hailstone. You know, hail starts coming down on the A40. But it's not just coming down where you're, you're wiping. It came down so powerfully and so strongly that the cars that were on the A40 just had to stop. We couldn't even go at a snail's pace. It, just, it was just... And, every, and I thought, that is incredible. Out of nothing, the whole atmosphere changed 
in an instant. And it was like I, I heard perhaps the Holy Spirit in my heart say, so shall my day be. Now I know that's speaking about the second coming, but that's what happens when God pours out his spirit, as we'll, as we'll see. Something happens, all of a sudden something ignites. And before you realise it, you're in a totally different environment than you've been before. And isn't this what's happening in Acts 2? A totally different environment than has been before. And it's all because of the Holy Spirit. And then you've got Peter in verse 14. And he is, he is so focused. He didn't have a clue what was going on before Pentecost. Now he's saying, this is what Joel uttered. Anyway, I've not even started my sermon. Um, I got carried away. <laughs> it's meant to be corporate revival. But anyway, we can come back to these things. And he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. And the Holy Spirit is poured. What do we do? Receive the Holy Spirit. And then we, we have this wonderful thing in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is a wonderful pattern. And we can come, I'll come back to this um, ne- next month. In fact, Colin was ministering on this on, his, on the last session yesterday. And these people got saved and revived, but then they be- began to be a new community. A revived community, a revival community. One of the things that we've been looking at in this Vision Week is that it's not enough just to tell the world that they're wrong. It's not enough just to protest and say, well, the Bible says they're not interested in our opinions. And our senior minister was saying, you know, the only way to show them is by love and service. By this they will know that you are my disciples that you shout at them and call them sinners. Know that you love one another. And here is this community. And these are the marks that you will find in a truly revived community. And if these marks remain in that community, that community will continue to be revived. But if these marks of a revival community demise, then that community, its revival anointing will also demise. The first thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, the living word. They didn't just go after experiences, but their experiences drove them into the word of God like never before. And to the fellowship, koinonia that word is. That doesn't just mean like fellowship, like you can go to a church and say, oh, don't go at the end, come and have a cup of tea and some fellowship with us. That's not... That's very nice, but that's not koinonia. Fellowship. This is partnership with purpose. That's what this is. This isn't just having a cup of tea and a slice of cake, nice as that might be. That is like, join us, and together we can do something for God. Together. The breaking of bread. Communion was taking place. People were breaking bread in houses right across the city. This was the fellowship. This was the focus on Jesus was in their homes. Breaking bread, praying, awe came on every soul. A fear and healthy respect of God. We often see in the church today, God is sort of, you know, defying God. Oh, he's your best buddy. Well, we can be God's friend, of course. He's he's not just your best buddy. He's the king of all glory the creator of the universe, that if he turned up in any power, you'd just die. (laughs) So he's an awesome, amazing, glorious God. And this healthy respect and fear, not, not a nasty fear of judgment, but a fear of standing in the presence of God 
and that who God is. The fear is, is that God becomes real. When God becomes real, a healthy respect comes back into the church. And signs and wonders and all who believed were together and had all things in common, selling their possessions. What that speaks of is, is a lack of... Um, a, 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 a lack of attachment to worldly things. A lack of attachment to worldly things. It was like, well, if we've got anything in this world, God, you can use it for your kingdom. So a lack of attachment to the things of the world and an increased attachment to the things of the Spirit. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, and generous of heart, praising God and having favour with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know that passage from Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47 is a passage that I meditate on. It's a passage I think you should meditate on if you're interested in revival because that's the goal. That's the community. That's what we're looking for. These types of of principles, and we don't have to wait till revival to exercise these principles. The more we exercise these principles, the more we're preparing ourselves for a move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, anyway, these were some thoughts and reflections on the revival that takes took place in the Book of Acts. And next week, I'll take you through the history of the revival that took place in the Dark Ages when. Great Britain was, was just a, it wasn't, it wasn't a nation, it was just a group of different types of tribes and kings. It was thoroughly pagan. It didn't, it didn't have any understanding of the gospel at all. It had never heard the gospel at all. It was a dangerous, dark place to be in. And God sent some great men and women into the nation and they banded themselves together. They met in places like Iona and Linda's Farm and they started like what we would call Bible colleges today but they were like monasteries where they raised up fiery signs and wonders preachers who went in and were prepared to stand before kings and preach the gospel and do miracles. And this was the, the beginning of what we call Celtic Christianity which was born in the fires of revival and that touched our nation for the first time. We're going to look at them. They didn't, they didn't have much light. They didn't have much knowledge. But that which they knew, they believed. And the Holy Spirit used them powerfully. Uh, and uh, we're going to have a look at some of those saints in that first revival. God bless you.